Good evening, listeners. It is the 16th of October, 2016, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It is time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I am Adrian Gallo. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories from one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming on the show, or you're just, you just want to find out about all the awesome things happening at Oregon State in our graduate community, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. You can find out more about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. And Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're lucky enough to be joined by Matt Slattery from the College of Environmental and Agricultural Sciences. Say hello, Matt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're very happy to have you on. Uh, how about you let the listeners know uh, what program you're a part of and what year uh, you're in? Yeah, so I just started my second year in the PhD program with the Environmental and Molecular Toxicology Department, and that's a part of the College of Agricultural Sciences here. Oh, I see. That's a pretty big umbrella. <laughs> yeah, very, very diverse. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so you know, actually, I was unaware that the College of Agricultural Sciences had this program, Environmental and Molecular Toxicology. So how about you tell me a little bit about what it is you do? Yeah, so I specifically work with nanomaterials and how they interact both with people and with the environment. And so lately my current research projects are focusing all around these uh, products called nanopesticides. And specifically I work with encapsulated pesticides. So to, give you, an idea of, yeah, okay. to, to give you an idea of what that means, uh, if you've ever gone to the grocery store or the drugstore and you're picking up um, some like Tylenol, and you see two different products. Sometimes one is just a regular product, but then they also have these extended release products or something where you only have to take it maybe once in the morning instead of having to take it every four hours. So you apply that same concept of this extended release capsule, but instead of with drugs, they actually make them for pesticides as well. So that's really useful for the farmers because now instead of having to apply it you know, maybe once a week, they could apply it in a single time in a month. And there are actually a number of other really useful benefits to that, including um, instead of having these strong bursts of uh, pesticide, they get this really, really high concentration that then kind of quickly tails off. Instead, you get this longer sustained release um, at a more reasonable level. So from the perspective of someone who's trying to keep their fields free of pests, these actually work a lot better. Definitely, and I have walked by, walked by places, there's a botany farm that students in the botany department get to use, and they have these, do not enter, pesticides have been <laughs> applied, no entry for X number of hours, and every pesticide kind of has a different time where you're not even allowed to go in your field. So does that fix that problem a little? Um, to some extent, yes. And so when it comes to these encapsulated pesticides, they do have the benefit that I mentioned before of actually becoming more effective. But the side um, benefit to these is also something that relates to human health. And so when you have to apply the pesticide much less frequently, that's great for the people who are actually pesticide applicators. And it's their job to be out in the fields applying these all the time. So now if you only have to apply, you know, a quarter as frequently, that reduces their exposure and thereby reduces the risk that they face as people who are handling these pesticides frequently. As far as how that pans out in the consumer sense, realistically, the way that pesticides are controlled right now, um, they're so protective and they're so careful that 
the research that I do doesn't necessarily um, have a direct implication for people when it comes to the amount of pesticide on your food at the grocery store. Again, that's very carefully regulated. And this really has more to do with the people who are working in the fields um, and also benefiting the farmers in terms of getting them a product that um, has this, again, sustained release rather than having to spike the fields, which can potentially also lead to, um, you know, generating these resistant populations. So it's really, really um, diverse in, in why it's a, a interesting and beneficial product. Um, but so then my role, though, as a toxicologist comes in in that I'm now studying how an encapsulated product is different from the conventional products in terms of their impact on environmental health. So there, I'm investigating this story and the question of whether or not an encapsulated pesticide now poses a different risk to the organisms that you're not trying to kill. So something that's in a nearby ditch or the streams that are fed from the same watershed that these agricultural fields are in. So you bring up a good point because this encapsulation method, kind of like a the way I've, I, I'm trying to think about it, is kind of like a gobstopper. You know, you have different layers, <laughs> and you know, through time, you get different colors. You know, but maybe not pesticide gobstopper. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> but this, this time release idea that um, that you know maybe the gobstopper does taste a little bit different at time zero and time ten. So, do you know if the pesticides in these encapsulated forms do they behave differently? than other things that we expect to see in that kind of size range. Yeah, so I come from a nanomaterial background. That's most of what my laboratory does. And nanomaterials, to kind of take a brief sidestep here, um, they are unique and different specifically put because of their tiny size. So to kind of put this into perspective for you, if you look at one of your hairs, like on your head or on your body, you can line up more than a 1,000 nanoparticles across the diameter of that hair. So they these are so so small. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around how tiny they really are. Wait, can can I can I repeat that? Did you say you can uh, edge by edge a thousand nanoparticles across the width of a human hair? Yes. Wow. Okay, I'm I'm trying to uh, encapsulate that in my head. <laughs> 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 okay, so what what kind of or maybe maybe uh, can you tell us maybe just a little bit about what kind of different properties you would expect to find out about? The, I mean, you're pretty early on, but what, what are you kind of expecting to find with these nanoparticles and how they behave? Yeah, so one of the big ones would be um, what we call in my field is a difference in the fate and the transport. And so basically that means um, where does it go when it, you know, when it enters the environment? Why does it go there? And how does it get there? So when you're looking at an encapsulated product, not only are these protecting the pesticide and allowing it to kind of remain on the field for a longer period of time, but another benefit to using these is that normally when they're spraying pesticides, they have to use all these other chemicals and solvents and things that are kind of nasty for um, constant human exposure, um, but they evaporate really quickly, so they're not all that different from, say, gasoline. Um, and they have to use those because pesticides are designed to be what's called hydrophobic, which means they do not like water. So that when you spray it on a field, it stays on the field. It doesn't wash off the soil. It doesn't wash off the foliage. It stays right where you put it, which is good. But that makes spreading it and applying it really tricky because you can't just put it in water and spray it everywhere. Now, with these encapsulated pesticides, you can. So, again, that's another benefit on the perspective of the farmer because now they can just dissolve their pesticides in water, spray it on the field, and they're hanging out in these capsules. And probably for the people that are uh, that are kind of mixing these things, it's probably yes. a little bit safer. They're not exposed to all these solvents and at a lower quantity. Instead of four times a month, it's only once, hopefully. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so, so benefits there. Yeah, so you could, the benefits are pretty well... Um, defended and, and again, these are absolutely worthwhile to look into and, and study because there are so many great advantages to using encapsulated products. 
Now, if you think, though, that when you're looking at these encapsulated products and they make it so that you can now take a chemical that normally is not comfortable in water and now it can be suspended in this um, capsule, which kind of acts like a vehicle, like a little car for it to sit in. Now there's a chance that when it rains, instead of these this pesticide that normally sticks to all of the soil and to the foliage, might now wash off in a greater quantity into the nearby river systems versus the regular conventional product. Oh, so, no. Right. <laughs> Time release in the stream with pesticides. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, this I, – and I can't say too far because I'm still very early in my, mm-hmm. in my research and I don't want to imply that that is definitely the case. But, you know, it's not that far of a stretch to investigate or to um, qualify why it's worthwhile to look into this very carefully so that we can decide – you know, the best way to use these products because, again, the advantages are definitely there. But to give this a holistic view and to make sure that we understand the product um, from the beginning to the end of its uh, life cycle, then we want to, you know, look at it from not only just how can this benefit the farmer, but also how can this potentially impact the environment nearby. So like you said before, you're really interested in understanding the fate and the transport of these particles. And you know, to me, it almost sounds like you're trying to figure out what the life cycle of these things are, because I don't imagine people have been studying nano-sized particles moving around in water. That seems kind of new. Yeah, well, it is in some regards. So technically, nanoparticles can exist naturally. There are naturally occurring in, uh, nanomaterials in the world. But we have all these new products now that are designed specifically to be in that size range. Now, generally, when we're talking about encapsulated pesticides, um, normally they're working a little bit bigger, um, generally on the order of a few thousand nanometers. But they do make some products that have um, nanomaterials in them. So I'm talking a thousand nanometers or less. So again, this is getting to much smaller than you can see and detect. But part of the reason that my expertise in nanomaterials comes into play when studying encapsulated pesticides is that the size of those capsules may have an effect on what they do and where they go. And again, that fate and transport aspect that I discussed earlier. And not only that, but then let's say, for example, they it does rain and you do get these capsules washed off and into the ditch nearby. I'm also studying a few specific organisms that, you know, maybe now instead of uh, when they're just kind of regularly in the water column, maybe now when you've got these capsules that are basically just little packets of pesticide, that could be more harmful to certain things living in that water than the conventional product where it's just kind of evenly distributed, you know, because instead you've got this, again, little <laughs> pesticide gobstopper, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, they could uh, end up being more um, technically like more uh, toxic and more, we call it uh, increased bioavailability in mm. the field of toxicology. Very cool. Well, I think we should take a step into the Wayback Machine and then come back to those <laughs> details in a little bit. So, Matt, I want to know, how did you first become interested in science or how did you decide eventually that you were going to do this environmental kind of investigate the environmental landscape more? Yeah. So uh, all through really all through school, from middle school and high school Um, And then, of course, in my early years through my undergraduate degree, I was always interested in sciences, but I didn't have any particular route that really jumped out at me. I loved my biology coursework. Uh, Chemistry always fascinated me, physics, math. So I was kind of um, caught in a decision of like, well, shoot, you know, which one of these fields do I really want to pursue? So you just loved carrying all those heavy books in your backpack. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, But but there wasn't one book that particularly sprung out at you and said, you know, like, oh, chemistry, I'm going to totally, I totally love chemistry. You kind of all, you had an affinity towards all of them almost. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I kind of would jump back and forth, you know, maybe I'd be in an organic 
organic chemistry class and I would just be totally enthralled in it. And then the next quarter it would be my, you know, my plant physiology class that would really have me totally captivated. And so as I kind of navigate through and I'm like, you know, changing my mind constantly in which of these fields I'm really going to pursue, I ended up taking a toxicology class. And that's where I learned that toxicology is a great fit for me because it ends up drawing on all of these different sciences. So I need to have the chemistry to understand how the uh, molecules are made in the synthesis and how we actually produce them in the first place. Um, you need to combine that knowledge then with biology so that you can understand the interactions with life forms and different organisms and um, how those two things interact with each other. And then you have to understand a little bit of physics and geology to understand, again, that fate and transport aspect that I mentioned of how do things move through their environment. And then there's even a human component to all of this because, of course, humans are concerned about their safety and their health. And we produce, you know, hundreds of thousands of different novel compounds every year that we really don't have a true understanding of. And there's been a number of really, really terrible mistakes that we've made, mm -hmm. you know, in the process of making all of these new technologies, inevitably we end up making stuff that does not play nice with people. <laughs> so part of my role is, you know, not only protecting the people, but then also, um, in a very related manner, protecting the environment as well. Because in my mind, those two are, are intimately linked with each other. So I can look out for the benefit of humans while also looking out for uh, protecting the ecosystem. And so, again, that, all of that kind of tying in and looping in together was why toxicology became so appealing to me. And from there, um, really just kind of hit it full force and, and get, got to still, you know, take my chemistry classes in biology and geography and combine all of them and synthesize them into one kind of coherent passion and goal. So then where did you find this toxicology class? So this all um, came to fruition up at Western Washington University up in Bellingham, Washington. And I uh, moved out there for school, leaving Colorado, and just completely fell in love with not only the Northwest, but really Bellingham in particular and, and Western as a university. Um, really just was a perfect fit for me. The people there are great. Uh, being right on the water of the Puget Sound with the mountains in my backyard made me feel right at home, but also comfortably uh, <laughs> in a different landscape for me to explore. And as a toxicologist who's getting into their field, it provided me with a lot to study. So the Puget Sound makes for an excellent case study of how things move in an environment and the, um, the way that the cities are situated in this um, the Puget Sound estuary, which is where the freshwater and the saltwater meet and they kind of hang out together, um, leads to some really interesting dynamics of how chemicals move through an environment, how they accumulate there. And then, of course, the people of the, in the um, northwest and in, along the Puget Sound specifically have a huge um, pride and affinity for the local animals. So salmon are a really big deal there, the orcas that swim through the bay. And a lot of these are organisms that, because of their um, position in the food web, tend to be affected a lot more than other organisms. So while I was also at Western Washington University, we had a number of indigenous populations that live nearby, including one called the Lummi tribe. And they, um, you know, they fish salmon for sustenance, and they are actually called the salmon people. And so this group of um, Native Americans, it's kind of this, like, tricky... Uh, issue to try and explain to them why they have to be cautious in eating the fish that are in the water because of the contamination there. And that's when it really also started to click with me in terms of how you can directly tie in the, this type of research that I do with a human component by not only working to prevent the type of pollution that is, you know, damaging the not only their culture, but also their food for the Lummi people, but then also 
you know, to to really reach out to them and, and help them understand the problem and understand the perspective that scientists have on this so that they can make their own informed risk decisions on how they want to live their lives rather than just telling them, oh, well, you should abandon, you know, millennia and generations of tradition because the scientist up the road said that that fish is dangerous for you to eat now. So, you know, hopefully we would avoid that problem in the first place and we can clean it up and remediate it to as much as we can. But to also give those people the tools that, you know, and all people the tools that they, they need to make decisions for themselves. Yeah, that sounds like tricky territory to navigate is it's not just toxicology is not just about what's happening in the lab but it's also like in specifically for this tribe how they're living their life and you can't just say don't eat the salmon they're the salmon people yeah exactly yeah <laughs> we may have our spreadsheets but that doesn't mean too much when their cultural identification has it embedded in everything that they, that they do uh, i just want to remind the listeners that uh, this is inspiration dissemination we're we're speaking to matt slatter he's an environmental toxicologist and we had just started the topic of how he got into toxicology and, you know, this idea where, you know, it's not just in the lab. You also have to, you know, be able to make your science accessible to people. And how do you convince or how were you able to convince uh, the Lemmy tribe who really use salmon a lot for, you know, not just their f- as a food source, but as, you know, a, a cultural ID? How do you were you able to convince them or were you able to convince them that, you know, eating salmon all the time could lead to uh, some potential downsides if they're bioaccumulating some contaminants in the Puget Sound area. Yeah, so I'm not going to even attempt to make any sort of claim that I <laughs> am responsible for informing the, the Lummi or, um, you know, making the real progress there and, and helping them uh, deal with that issue. But I was a small part of, you know, a group of students at a university that studies toxicology. And it was more so that we were um, you know, getting a really, really powerful look at the intersection of toxicology and human health and, e- and ecological health and how they all tie together um, by working with the existing government, government organizations. And so I would speak with tribal representatives and I would give presentations on some of the models that I created at the Lummi Reservation and, you know, just kind of speaking and interacting with the Lummi um, personally. So you were actively reaching out to them? Yes, and... <clears throat> Uh, not just me, though. Again, I don't want to make it seem like I don't want to <laughs> oversell myself here. But You're very humble. <laughs> uh, but my classes and my professors and um, a number of classes in particular that were um, designed for understanding how the government and the state government in Washington cleans up remediated sites and how they um, take into account public opinion and um, we consider them the stakeholders of the environment that they're in. And the Lummi just make for such a great example because – when it comes to the general population, you know, they can send out these fish consumption advisories, which is what they're uh, referred to as by the Washington state government. And they can say, okay, you shouldn't eat more than one Chinook salmon in a week like that. You should, should be like your rough limit. Oh, even I have a tough time dealing with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, that's, so that's for f- certain fish in a certain area that is known to have some level of contamination mm. already. Um, but to really, to kind of help them, you know, to help and really help the students understand that that is great. And for a lot of people that works, but when you're trying to consider all stakeholders and in really allow the research that you do to, to reach the people that it needs to most seeing and interacting with the Lummi tribe and understanding why their case makes them different, but they still, you know, require 
as much assistance as possible from toxicologists and other people who understand the situation really kind of, again, emphasizes that there is no silver bullet to a lot of these problems. And even when you think that you've got it figured out, that the human element tends to make it so much more complicated that yeah. it's really kind of a never-ending struggle. And there's a lot of work to be done, and there really always will be. Definitely. So if toxicology wasn't hard enough, you know, you have to integrate <laughs> chemistry, biology, a little bit of physics. You decided to throw in some some sociology and psychology yeah. to try and convince people that this <laughs> that you know, what what you know matters, and to try and convince uh, their their practices otherwise. Definitely. Yeah, and so that ended up um, kind of rolling into in general science outreach. And so another position that I have um, aside from here at the university is at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry up in Portland. And they have a great uh, workshop. I'll give them a plug right now for the Science Communication Fellowship program that they run. And so that gives you special training on how to reach other audiences that are maybe not normally um, interested in science or don't have a science background and how to explain the type of research that you do to someone who you know probably has no familiarity with that field and that topic, and so I get to go um, speak with visitors from you know little four-year-old kids <laughs> to grandparents to everything in between, um, and I think that that's another really important thing as a scientist to you know do your work, but your role as a scientist can't only be at the bench, and you know it's it's a vital <laughs> role that you play to leave the lab and also you know make that information accessible and available so that people out in the real world can can use it you know not just you and not just so that you're publishing papers and furthering mm-hmm. your field but that that ends up coming back around directly to someone who's going to care in your community and help explain why it might be useful for them definitely so, so go ahead i was gonna say well what took what um what happened after grad or undergrad then so now you've got this your fire's lit and yeah. very <laughs> You're all about environmental toxicology, and then you graduate. Uh, so was it right to graduate school after that? No, no, it was not. And <laughs> while I definitely knew that graduate school was on the table and that that was something that was really important to me, I also knew that if I jumped straight into a long, you know, five, potentially six-year program, that that would be a little much for me. And I'm sure that other students can understand when yes. you're rounding that, you know, fourth, maybe fifth year of your undergraduate, you're pretty anxious to maybe take a break. And I applaud the people who go straight into graduate school because I know a lot of people who do it. But um, I had heard from other people, you know, advisors and other students that um, if you are interested in taking a break, that the best time to do it would be between your undergraduate and your graduate degree. Before you're trapped. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So so let me guess you, you hung out at home with your dog on your lap and watched the movies for a couple months. Is that what you did? Not quite. So that's what I would do. (laughs) So I worked for a while. I I mean, again, as I mentioned before, I was just completely in love with Bellingham and honestly just not really ready to leave. So I stuck around for about a little over a year after I graduated Um, I worked a few jobs and saved up some money, and with graduate school kind of on the horizon there, I decided to go backpack through Asia for about five months. Slightly different than Colorado. So jealous. Little little change (laughs) of scenery. And that really, um, it was an unbelievable experience in general, but in terms of, you know, something to slide in between my undergraduate time and my graduate degree now, really, like brought me back to the States in a like, mindset of being totally prepared and so excited to return to school. Because another thing I realized that even though I knew eventually I would return to graduate school or return to school to um, get my graduate degree, I didn't realize how important science was to me until I spent two years out of 
of a you know research setting and to completely leave school and to you know I was just waiting tables and just kind of hanging out and having fun you know when I realized it was time to go back it was time and I was ready <laughs> and committed and I've still kind of carried that momentum through my degree now and I mean it's graduate school is tough and it's a long a long journey but having made that you know, kind of pit stop in Asia, which also is just kind of a glorious heaven for five months. So yeah. the hardest decision you make is whether or not you're going to have a beer at lunch <laughs> and what city you're going to go to next. Um, so, you know, as, as always, you know, I wish we had more time to discuss some of these things. So I'm sure a lot of listeners also have plans, you know, to go do some traveling. But if you could briefly mention maybe one experience or one thing that you learned out of that five month, uh, you know, backpacking experience, what, what would you say to our listeners that, that that you really remember. Yeah. So I would say my favorite thing that happened while I was abroad was seeing um, something called Angkor Wat, which is this temple complex in Cambodia. And unlike where you go across many destinations in the world that have this kind of ancient ruin um, where there's normally fences and there's kind of restrictions on where you can go, you walk into this like it's uh, must be 40 or 50 square miles with dozens of temples in the jungle. And some of the bigger Temples are crowded. There's a lot of people. But you go off into the jungle and you can literally find yourself completely alone standing on top of, you know, a thousand, you know, ancient bricks with trees growing through them and scrambling over these ruins with not another soul in sight and really kind of gave you perspective on the things that humans have been like capable of for thousands of years. And to just be there and, you know, you're out there and you're alone, but you're out this unreal place that seems like it would be better suited for a, a sci-fi movie than for <laughs> you know somewhere on this planet so well nice. I'm, I'm glad the listeners can't see this but my jaw was to the floor that whole time <laughs> <laughs> but but let's get back so you've had your fun you realize you really enjoy science you uh, went on and applied to graduate school and you were applying to graduate school while you had limited internet internet access all, all through yep. <laughs> southeast asia but you ended up making your way back here to oregon state so congratulations by the way thank you <laughs> um but but now let's get back a little bit and finish off with uh exactly what you plan on doing you know what's uh w- what are some of the hopeful ideas that you plan to do with with your work and you should probably remind the listeners what it is that you do yeah so again i've been focusing lately on these encapsulated pesticides and specifically the uh, nano size components of these encapsulated products so the really 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 tiny stuff that tends to behave a little differently than the, the bigger materials that we're used to working with and so my general research goal at this point is to focus overall the role that nanomaterials play in food. So lately that has been through pesticides, but um, I have another appointment with the Environmental Protection Agency through a collaborative agreement between OSU and the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency. And we will be studying how um, nanomaterials are taken up into plants. So I'll be looking specifically at food crops. So we'll be looking at um, how nanomaterials might get their way or find their way into plants, and then it, if they do get into the plant, is it going to go into the tissue, like the food that you're going to eat? You know, So, for example, if it's corn, is it going to get taken from the soil that the corn's grown in, and is it going to make its way onto the corn cob on your dinner table or not? And so that the food kind of has a really convenient and interesting uh, unifying effect for me because I get to take a look at these encapsulated pesticides. I get to look at more traditional nanomaterials. And then also it has a really direct application for maintaining that you know, a relationship with humans and people. And I get to, you know, uh, appeal to, again, my broad interest in sciences <laughs> and um, social outreach and unify it all under this umbrella of food and nanomaterials. Definitely. And it sounds like nanomaterials are 
increasingly becoming more popular for the benefits that you've already listed. And so this is going to be something that the public need to know about. Yes. And hopefully there'll be dedicated people like you to reach out to them and explain, <laughs> don't be afraid. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe you should listen to the warnings. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe a little bit less broccoli or wash off your broccoli yeah. a little bit more <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Okay. So, uh, any future plans on the horizon? So you've got your, you've got your, uh, your projects laid out now, but what do you think is going to happen after Oregon state? So I really like the idea of, again, finding a career position where I can continue to do research, but also has a, um, a public health component to it. So there are a number of government positions that I could go for. And that, um, one of those I'd be really interested in would really just be kind of a general public health toxicologist. Mm -hmm. So I, in that role would get to exercise my expertise in a general sense for toxicology. So not just pesticides, but also other contaminants in the environment um, and things that people might run across on a day-to-day -day basis and, and help explain to them how they can make informed decisions about what that risk really is. Um, it, but then I also get to do a little bit of my own research as well. And then another really cool position that I think I would be very, very much so pleased with would be um, consulting for environmental re remediation groups. So I would go in and I would help um, or I would explain how things move in the environment and so that we can better understand how to clean them up out of the environment and also to prioritize, you know, what are the worst and the nastiest spills that we need to prioritize and get taken care of now versus other things because, unfortunately, when it comes to cleanup, it tends to be very, very expensive and budget. Long term. Yeah, well, <laughs> it will never be as high as I think any of us hope that it is. So, Right. Yeah. Very awesome. cool. Well, so, you know, as, as it always is, this show goes too fast. And it's too short. Yep, and we are coming to the end of our show, Matt. Uh, but we usually have two traditions. And the first tradition we have on Inspiration Dissemination is to ask our, uh, our guests if they have any advice. It could be advice to yourself, maybe, uh, yes, you should take that time off before undergrad to graduate <laughs> school. That was a good choice. Uh, or, you know, uh, anyone that's in graduate school now. So do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, I would say, and I mean, you just mentioned it, but taking that time <laughs> off and, you know, go check out some temples in the jungle, go take a break. <laughs> I think some people, you know, they may not need as much time as I took, but it seems to be that admissions committees and professors and other people, they don't look at that as a, oh, you know, you're being lazy or you're not committed. They see it as a, wow, you made a good decision to, to capitalize on that opportunity while you could. And so I would advance that to other people as well. If it's on the table, you know, take that opportunity because you don't want to regret it down the line. And I can't imagine that if you did go traveling, you would be upset with yourself. So. <laughs> For sure. You, you do bring up a good point. Uh, you know, the, the idea of traveling or taking some time off really, really shouldn't scare you from trying to go to graduate school. Yeah. Because, you know, if it's if you're not sure about going to graduate school and committing that two or five years, probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, not saying you know you can't. But uh, it, like you said, it's probably a good idea that if you do want that time off and do feel like you can use it. Uh, traveling is a way that you can never say, uh, never say bad things about. That's for sure. And Absolutely. we all have a bucket list item now. Yes. We have to go to Angkor Wat. <laughs> Angkor Wat. Actually, you know, a friend of mine mentioned that. Showed me some pictures, and I wish we can show pictures on radio. But it is. It looks like an incredible place. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and our final tradition then is to have our guests provide a song, which is uh, their song by their request. And so, Matt, what is the song that you've selected and why? So we're going to listen to a little Marvin Gaye, and we're doing yeah. Ain't No Mountain High Enough. 
And this is just one of those songs that I think most people can agree with, that this comes on and you just feel so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a big, you know shower singer and, and mostly in <laughs> private maybe maybe also karaoke depending on how many drinks i've had but this is one of those all-time favorites that really just gets me going and, and is a good support song for when you're got some lo- long hours coming ahead and there ain't to, no mountain yeah. high enough for any of us <laughs> nice. gotta hang in there finish those graduate degrees yep well matt i'm thank you so much for coming on the show i'm sure we'll hear from you again especially with some of the plans you have for your future so we wish you all the best and again thank you for coming on the show thank you so much for having me this is inspiration dissemination we're on every sunday at 7 p.m and here is ain't no mountain high enough from our guest matt slattery Listen, baby. 